I want you to know as a body, as a, as a church family, how much the shepherds in this place love you. They really do. They pray for you. They pray over you. They pray about uh, situations. Um, they have a real burden on, in their hearts uh, for you as a body of people, and especially our young people as you go back to, to school and our teachers. Um, we love you and we're praying for you. And I, I just want to remind you of that. Uh, our, our shepherds here uh, are men with, with big hearts and they love you and they pray often for all of you. I just want you to know that. Something to die for. Yeah, um, Brent asked me what I was going to preach on. I gave him my topic. He said, uh, as he said, um, you know, if we sing songs about death, everybody's going to be asleep by the time you get up there. And I said, don't worry about that. I'll take care of that when I get up there myself. Uh, If I need help putting somebody to sleep, I'll take care of that. Um, So uh, please stay awake today for my sake, just because of that. Something to die for. There's a pattern in the New Testament uh, that writers use with a lot of consistency. At, at the heart of the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, right? So there is this motif that, um, th- that the New Testament writers uh, seem to come back to time and time again, and that is this idea of death and rebirth. Death and rebirth. Um, I'm going to have to get this clicker now since I've created a PowerPoint. The Apostle Paul, he wrote this in in the book of Colossians. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died, and now your life is hidden with Christ. So transformation happens in our lives, um, and this becomes an ongoing pattern. A couple of verses later, Paul says... Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So, what if we look at this death and resurrection uh, idea, this motif of death and resurrection, not as just something that happened to Jesus and that, you know, the world celebrates every Easter, But what if we look at this idea of death and resurrection, death and rebirth, as the normal, normative uh, transformation that that goes on within each one of us? Now, you know that salvation happens in an instant. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you allow that faith, the grace of God through your faith, to lead you to obedience, and you're buried with Christ in baptism. You are raised up. The Bible says that you die. The old man is crucified. You died with Christ, and he raises you up a new creation. Behold, all things are gone. That which is new has come, right? So we understand that salvation is in a moment. It's in an instant. But the idea of sanctification... That's a big fancy word for uh, becoming more like Jesus every day. That is a transformation that happens day after day after day. It's not 
It's not something that just happens in a moment, in an instant. And so that's what I want us to really think about and to discuss uh, this morning. Jesus viewed his own life, his, his reason for coming to the earth in the first place, as an expression of this principle, that the road to life runs through death. The road to life runs through death. This is our reading this morning. Let's look at it again. From the book of John, chapter 12, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, if it dies, it produces many seeds. Those who love their life will lose it, while those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There was an old Scottish preacher, um, his name was Ian Pitt Watson, uh, who commented on this passage. Let me read to you what he says. He said that there have been just two great revolutions in the history of mankind. Only two that changed human life forever. The first revolution, he said, began when somebody noticed the strangest thing. Normally, burying something in the ground is a way to get rid of it. But if you do that with a seed, something happens. The seed becomes something it was not. It becomes a plant or a tree, and it produces fruit. Now it, just isn't, it, it, now it isn't just getting life, it's actually giving life. But it could never have happened if the seed hadn't died first. He goes on to say, but then a few days later, a tiny green shoot comes up from the dirt. This means something. It means that human beings no longer have to be nomads wandering from place to place in search of food. It means there will be villages and towns and tools and civilization. It means there can now be a place we call home. Human civilization, he says, is built on this one observation. And it's not a command, it's just the way things are. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a solitary grain of wheat. But if it dies, it will be a rich harvest. To die, to be buried in the ground, looks like the end. But in the end, he says, it turns out to be its glory. So, there is a second revolution, and it has nothing to do with agriculture. This, Jesus said, is, is also the way that life works. Only it isn't a seed this time, it's your life. And this is what Jesus said. If you love your life, you've got to lose it. If you love your life, you have to lose it. Now that's a hard saying, isn't it? It's not hard for us to understand that. It's just really hard for us to do that, <laughs> isn't it? It's hard for us to practice that. I think we understand it up here, 
But to actually put that into practice, mm, that's a little different. That's a different thing altogether. So, here's the question. What is Jesus calling me to die to if I'm going to live? I mean, I mean really, really live. What is Jesus calling you to die to if you really want to live? Some of you may know the name John Ortberg. He's a, an author, a preacher, I think, out in, in California. Um, he had some things to say I, that I thought were very helpful in regard to what we're talking about this morning. And um, he said in regard to this, he says, first of all, I need to push the button. I need to die to my giftedness. When I first read that, I thought, what in the world does that mean? I need to die to my giftedness. He says, God gives every human being gifts and abilities and talents and skills. And that's a good thing. But sin messes our gifts up. And, and we're tempted to try and use our gifts to prop up our, our own identities or our, or our own egos and to impress others. He says, I have to die to my gifts or eventually they will kill my soul. I began to think about this in regards to this giftedness. You know, I, as you know, I was um, a child of the 70s. I've brought that up before. Uh, I think probably uh, the decade of the 70s has probably got some of, if not the best music of all times. Uh, you might push back on that. I understand uh, you can be wrong uh, if you want to be. But I love the music of the 70s, the late 60s. Early, so I see a lady over here going, mm-hmm, that's right, that's right. Um, now that I've gotten older, I have to understand that not everything that came out during that decade uh, is, is good to listen to. Some of the lyrics um, of some of the songs are not really what a Christian wants to be putting in their mind, so I have to be very selective. But there's a lot of it that's just good, clean rock and roll. And I still like, that's my go-to. That's my go-to music when I'm driving, when I'm traveling. But when I think about some of that music and I think about some of the lyrics that, that, that we shouldn't listen to, I ask myself, how do those musicians have that talent? Where did that gift come from? Where does that that ability to play these instruments and make this good music come from? Well, let me tell you this. It doesn't come from Satan. Satan does not have the ability to give good gifts. Did you, did you know that? Satan cannot give good gifts. Those gifts, that ability comes from God. It comes from God. But what makes the music something that we as God's people shouldn't listen to um, is, is what it's talking about, the lyrics. But yet the gift comes from God. What happened? You see, sin messes up our gifts. We can use them to, to either bring glory to God or we can use them to bring glory to ourselves. And so that's what Ortberg is saying. If I'm going to lose my life and let God resurrect me to be what he wants me to be, I've got to learn to die to my own giftedness. At first blush, that sounded kind of strange to me, but I think I get it. I think I understand. 
Secondly, he says, I need to die to my need to control relationships and the people in my life. You know, a lot of time we treat other people based on how they make us feel. And if they don't make us feel good, we treat them poorly. And that's not good. I need to die to my need to control relationships and people in my life. And then thirdly, he says, I need to die to my appetites. I think, there we go. I think um, this obviously resonates with us. The Apostle Paul says, I beat my body to make it my slave. The body is, is really just a collection of appetites. And, and that's a good thing, right? I mean, appetites are not necessarily bad. When, when I get through preaching today, your stomach's going to start growling, and you're going to say, hey, it's time to eat. Somebody's might be growling right now, but we're not done yet. But in a little bit, we're all going to go, and our, and our body's going to say, hey, you're hungry. That's a good thing. That keeps us alive. So appetite in and of itself is not a bad thing. But if I indulge every one of my appetites, Every appetite that I have, if I indulge that, it won't take long for me to become a slave to my appetites. So if I'm going to lose my life, I've got to, I've got to die to my appetites. Let me, let me just say this. Dying to self is not just, it's not just an end to itself. No, it, it's a means to an end. The, the, the death that Jesus is calling me to die is the death of the lesser, petty self. So that a, a, a nobler, a better, a joyful self might come to life. So, to understand the why, why we need to die daily in order to be transformed, it helps us to understand our own sinfulness. Um... On the one hand, we might talk about things that we might call sinful acts. Sinful acts. Something like telling a lie, or cheating, or stealing something, or gossip. Those are things we might call sinful acts. But on a deeper, a deeper level, there is something that we might call sinfulness. Sinfulness. Not just talking about certain acts that we might do, but actually our sinfulness. Look at what Paul wrote. Romans chapter 7. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Does that resonate with anybody? The good that I know I ought to do, he says, I don't do it. And now this, this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about, right? This is the guy that we look up to and we say, if I could be like anybody except Jesus... If I could be like any just mortal man, it would be the Apostle Paul. What a 
pillar of the church, what an ambassador for Christ, suffered. And Paul is saying, look guys, I know the good I ought to do and sometimes I just don't do it. And the stuff that I know I shouldn't do, that's the stuff I wind up doing it. I want to do good, but I just can't carry it out. I think we all resonate with that at times. The reason that dying to self is so important for transformation involves the connection of our sin and our habits. Now, a habit is a relatively permanent pattern of behavior. It's something that we do a lot. You know, when you're learning to ride a bicycle, sometimes that comes with a lot of of scrapes and bruises, skinned up knees, sometimes skinned up palms of your hands. Um, It can be hard work, right? But once you learn to ride a bike, what? Do you think about it again? It just becomes a habit. It just becomes a habit. You don't even think about it. I have gone years between um, periods of riding a bike. I used to ride, uh, there was a a lake around um, Oklahoma City, a little lake around a a man-made lake that was a, the reservoir of water there for the city, and it had about a 10-mile track all the way around it. And you'd see people walking and roller skating, and I'd ride my bike 10 miles around that, and I, I did it often. But then years went by that I never rode a bike. But guess what? When I got on a bike again, I could do it. I didn't have to think about it. It just, it was habit. It just became habitual. And so, without habits, we wouldn't even really make it through the day. We're just really a collection of habits. That's, that's what we do, and God made us that way. That's a good thing. That's a good thing, except that sin has gotten into our habits. And that affects the way I think. It affects the things that I feel, the things that I desire, the things that I choose, the, the words that I speak, how I act how I treat others. And I can override a habit by willpower for a day or for a week or maybe a month. But sooner or later, sooner or later, that habit is going to creep back in and no amount of willpower is going to keep it at bay. I mentioned, I think, last Sunday about Programs like AA, 12-step programs. No one says that I I have stopped using drugs or that I am no longer drinking alcohol because of my own willpower. Nobody says that. They say it's because of a higher power. And uh, that's the only way. You can't do it by your own power. When Jesus' followers studied together and prayed together and confessed their sins together and and served alongside one another and and fellowshiped with each other, they were replacing old and, and, and maybe sinful habits with new kingdom habits. Look at what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6. He said, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, 
but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been, look at this, brought from death to life. There's that resurrection motif again. Live your life. Don't offer your parts of your body to sin and wickedness. Don't, don't get caught up in that sort of thing. But live as someone who has been brought from death to life. And that is exactly what has happened. It's exactly what's happened to us. If, if we don't know it, let me tell you. When you gave your life to Christ, you, Christ didn't just scrub you up. We don't go into the baptistry as if we're taking a bath. Peter said, you know, that this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. He said it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but it's the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It's, it's an appeal to God for a clean conscience. It's not like getting a bath. It's not like being scrubbed up. What it's like is, de is death. It's dying. You died. And when you came up out of that water, you became a new creature. That's what it's like. That's the reality of deciding to follow Jesus. There's sort of a deeper level of sin that we don't often you know, talk about in, in church, especially not in, in churches of Christ. This idea of original sin that, you know, since the fall there's something wrong or something bent in human nature. And that idea of original sin, I think, has, has led to some really erroneous bad doctrines. Like uh, one of them that comes to mind is, is infant baptism. We say that babies, you know, people that believe that we inherit original sin from Adam... Um, it has led to the idea that when a baby's born, he's, he or she is sinful, so they need to be baptized, right? I do not believe that. I don't believe that. But I think we must admit that because we are children of Adam, that there is something intrinsically wrong in our natures, in our flesh, in our fallen natures. That given time, that precious little sinless baby is going to grow up and they will sin. They will become a sinner because of what happened in the garden. Do I make myself clear on that? I don't want anybody attacking me at the door talking about original sin, okay? Um, I don't think we inherit anybody's sin. The soul who sinned is the one who will die. That's Ezekiel 18.20, so go and read that. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son, okay? Um, we all stand based upon what we choose to do, but we must admit that if we live long enough, we all choose wrong. Do your head like this. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need a Savior. And that's why we've got to die. Die to our sins. Preacher's kids sometimes get a bad rap because a lot of them turn out poorly. 
But the reason preacher's kids turn out bad is because they've been playing with the deacon's kids. <laughs> That's what happened. That's what happened. Sin, it's all around us. The truth is that something is intrinsically broken. Something is sinful about every human being. And merely human efforts, education, a good environment, good families, therapy, counseling, none of that is going to cure the problem of sin. I have got to die to myself. Not my God-given self, but my sinful self. I've got to die to that if I really want to be raised up. And if I do that, then something good will come from it. Let me close with a scene from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Has anybody read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? A couple of you. There is a scene in that that beautifully depicts this uh, death and resurrection uh, idea, this motif that we've been exploring this morning. There's a man, he is approached by an angel. And the man carries this big lizard, this big lizard on his shoulder everywhere he goes. The lizard represents um, the man's sinful uh, behavior towards sexual things. How he has mismanaged all of his life, um, his flesh and his lust and his desires, habitually mismanaged sexuality. And it's, and it's turned into this terrible habit. And it dominates his, his thoughts and it dominates his time and his life. And the man hates the lizard. He hates it, but he can't imagine living life without it. So, there's a point in the story where the angel offers to kill the lizard. And the man recoils. I, he doesn't want anything that drastic. He, he just wants a gradual lizard management program. Uh, let's don't do anything crazy here, but if we could just gradually learn to manage the lizard. And the angel says to him, a gradual process will not do. Only death will take care of the problem. So, in that moment, that moment contains all moments. All moments in life are wrapped up in this. The angel will kill the lizard, but he cannot do so without the man's permission. So in his misery and in his despair, the man finally consents, says yes, and then there is this horrible burning. And the man and the lizard both fall to the ground, apparently dead. But not dead. The man rises up 
He's more solid and he's strong and he's more glorious than he's ever been before. And the lizard rises up as well. But, but this time he's not a lizard. Now he's a, a glorious, spirited stallion. He's a beautiful horse. And though he must die to sinful sexuality, that sexuality is not destroyed, it's redeemed. Listen to what Lewis writes. He says, nothing, not even the best and noblest, can go on as it is now. And nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Listen, listen to this. Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. Isn't that amazing? That is the foundation of the Christian life. That's the foundation. If you try to hold on to your life, guess what? You'll lose it every time. But if you offer your life to God, if you abandon it, if you surrender it to his will, then something, something new is birthed. If you die to self, God will raise you up. That's really what all of the Christian life is about. God gives good things. God gives good gifts to us. But because of sin, because of what happened in the fall, that touches each and every life. We have the ability to choose good, but we don't so often. And so God doesn't take away those good things that have, be have become corrupted what he does is, if we will die to them, die to ourself, in essence, God resurrects them up to something that is more beautiful and stronger than you could ever imagine. That's what God has in store for you. That's what God has in store for all of us. If you will just die to yourself, to your sinfulness, Everything that you're struggling with, all that which has been corrupted, he will raise up into something new, into something beautiful. That's something worth dying for, and it's also something worth living for. If you need Christ, and you all do, we all do, if there's something on your heart, I'm going to come down here, we're going to sing a song, stand next to me. We'll also have a couple of elders in the back. And if you have something that you would like to share with the body, if you would like to make a decision this morning to die and let Christ raise you up.